Welcome to the Reload for Unconventional Leaders, where we help you craft the life you truly want by questioning the assumptions you have about how life works. My name is Sean, and I'll be your host on this journey. As a performance coach and special operations combat veteran, I help high-performing executives kick ass in their careers while connecting with deeply powerful insights that fuel their lives. Okay, back at it again, and... What do we have going on today? Well, last week we started to dive into this concept of mortality. And maybe it's just the changing seasons, (laughs) the slightly gloomier weather that's happening right now, or the fact that a couple of my clients not too long ago had experiences, not personally, but in their immediate social circle or their immediate family circle that expose them and more directly their family members to mortality. These reminders that we don't live forever. And so in reflecting on what happened with last week's show is sometimes the case that I feel like there are things that I leave out, (laughs) to to just put it bluntly. And I don't necessarily leave them out intentionally. Sometimes it's just a, a matter of time constraints. But then also there are times when a certain concept or a way of thinking has yet to fully mature or fully evolve inside of my brain or inside of my heart depending on the type of topic that it is. And this is one of those times. So I wanted to be able to go back in and eh, I guess just touch up in a couple areas that I feel were either underdeveloped or neglected last time. Obviously, as my thinking on this topic evolves, I'm going (laughs) to reserve the right to amend or amplify my thoughts and commentary. Now, for those who haven't yet listened to episode 74, I encourage you to listen to that episode first so that you can be up to speed for today's conversation. Don't worry, we will definitely wait for you. But as a brief recap on last week's conversation, we looked at some ways in which many people, not just in America, but around the world, evade looking at their mortality and what might be underlying this behavior, what causes us to look away or try to run away from something that is a natural part of the life cycle, you know, that it eventually ends. And so I wanted to be able to dedicate some time today to looking at some practical tips for getting back into the swing of things after a brush with death. Now, conceptually, and as kind of came out in episode, wait for it, 49, Integrating a Spiritual Awakening, I would argue that brushes with death are very similar to psychedelic or plant medicine experiences in the sense that they are so or it can be, I should say, they can be so profound and they can be such a stark departure and contrast from our typical day-to-day experience that they end up sort of standing in a class of their own. And it's in this contrast that I think oftentimes individuals can get to a place of really robust development and awareness building. But there's also, I think, a trap in this. And I would say that this trap exists with both plant medicine experiences and near-death experiences or experiences where one's mortality is, is clearly highlighted. And that is that we can be unmoored or disconnected from the day-to-day. Now, whether that shows up as life feeling really mundane or pointless in some way, 
for if that shows up as, uh, I suppose, depression, I guess, would, would go along with that, where we just don't see the point anymore. There is this this commonality between these two types of experiences because the one experience, and in this I mean psychedelic experiences, it can oftentimes be very almost overwhelming in how good it can feel in terms of catharsis and in terms of a sense of enlightenment. Now, whether that's a spiritual enlightenment or whether that's just simply uh, how much more conscious you are of your own patterns and the ways in which you are harmful to yourself and others. And that doesn't necessarily have to be physically harmful, but it can be sort of emotionally or mentally harmful. Where do you have negative self-talk? Where do you have negative interactions in your relationships? So the plant medicine experience can feel overwhelming in a very, very positive way. And by the same token, I think that brushes with death or you know reminders of our, mort- of our mortality can also be similarly crystallizing and clarifying. And it can help us connect with this idea that, oh my God, time is precious. And I want to engage the time that I have left in, in the most powerful way that I am capable of. And all of that is really, really great. I mean, I think it's wonderful. But it also can present this, again, this sense of overwhelm where we don't quite know how to integrate that kind of electrifying moment with what we typically have going on. As I often joke with retreat participants, your regularly scheduled programming. Now, when it comes to brushes with death, and I would say that in many time, in many cases, this is more relevant for situations where you were close to death, but that it wasn't necessarily the case that you were in the direct causal chain, but you may have just observed it. And what do I mean by this? Well, for instance, if you were to observe somebody that you cared about have a fatal accident, even though you yourself were not in harm's way, you're just simply watching it happen. But even more complicated, and I think more difficult, is when we actually are engaged in the mechanism of action ourselves and we just happen to be the ones who make it so again think about an accident and if it's easiest to visualize think about a car accident and if you really want to take it to another level think about you actually driving the car and maybe you overlooked something maybe you didn't uh, check for a right-of-way or you did check for right-of-way, but you, you just missed something. As humans, we are all prone to making, quote-unquote, mistakes. Now, we can argue whether there is such a thing as a mistake in the universe, or whether in the grand design all things are meant to happen the way they are. But for the sake of conversation, let's just say mistake, and not get ourselves overly wrapped around the axle as far as you know, what is what is the meaning of mistake? But let's just say that you're driving a car and you missed something. And then there's an accident and your friend who's in the car with you, who you care about, or your loved one who's in the car with you, who you care about, ends up dying and you don't. This kind of circumstance can create real problems in one's ability to reintegrate with day-to-day life. Because obviously there's survivor's guilt to be dealt with. There is also the potential for culpability, a sense of guilt around what you should or should not have done. And these things can weigh very, very heavily on someone. And it's in this aspect of, I would say maybe let's classify it as kind of the darker experience, 
then I think some of the tips that will come out in today's conversation are much more useful and helpful. Now, it's not to say that they cannot be utilized in settings where you feel good about the clarifying moment or the potential brush with mortality. It's just that they're going to typically show up as more effective for those individuals who are really struggling because of some perception around culpability and the potential for that to spiral into an even worse case of depression and a sense of blame coinciding with a sense of overarching meaninglessness or pointlessness in terms of how life unfolds. So last week, one of the key items or key themes, I guess, that we ended up talking about is this idea of how do we, how do we reconcile some of these very stark moments with that day-to-day that we inevitably are going to end up getting back to. And this idea that we want to be able to memorialize our experiences when, when these passages from life to death occur, one of the things that can really be quite tricky is when individuals have a, a sense of guilt, and in this case I'm not actually talking about that accident example that I referenced a moment ago where maybe you missed something and so you have a sense of guilt that you didn't do what you were supposed to have done. No, no, no. In this case, what I'm talking about is this idea that regardless of how the, the death occurred and your sense of uh, involvement in it or, or lack of involvement in it, we can often end up getting stuck in the sense that we want our person's life and their passage to mean something. And oftentimes we end up crucifying ourselves or punishing ourselves in that we don't allow ourselves to get back into the regular flow of life because we feel that that is somehow dishonoring the memory. But it's getting back into the regular flow of life that is essential. And along with that came this question around, well, what changes do you want to make in your life given what has occurred? And where is it that those changes are going to lead to a better experience for you and potentially, concurrently, a true honoring of the person who has passed. And again, this can be very empowering in terms of getting back into your quote-unquote regularly scheduled programming. But there are some other discussion points that I think are worth introducing at this point. And part of that is to help individuals who are feeling post-traumatic event, post-brush with mortality, who are feeling disconnected from that day-to-day, regularly scheduled programming. And as a a matter of self-assessment, I think it's useful to be able to ask yourself some questions around where do you notice yourself shying away from activities that you used to enjoy? Where do you notice yourself pulling within this kind of withdrawing into yourself, going into your shell, as it were? And along with that, where are you avoiding relationships or interaction? And that interaction may be with, I don't know, let's say an organized team of some sort, whether that's at work or recreationally. That can also be, I don't know, where are you finding convenient ways not to answer the phone when somebody calls or to avoid texting somebody back? But overall, what we're looking at is this idea that we are, we are somehow excluding ourselves from 
the outside world. And to be clear, I think that some of that can be quite healthy. It can be quite meaningful for us to take some time to pause, to really come to grips with what has occurred, what has transpired, what have we, what do we feel we have lost in the passing of a friend or a loved one, and in situations where we pretend, potentially have some sense of culpability to be able to take time to work through those sensations and those inner allegations or accusations. So that to me does really make sense. But then at the same time, we want to, I guess, have a little bit of a uh, stopwatch running notionally to be able to keep track of when have we been sitting here too long? Now, this is something that I've mentioned in episodes in the past, this this difference between sitting with something and sitting in it. And for the sake of uh, hopefully clarity, this idea that when we sit in something, we are miring ourselves in it. We are just stewing in it. Whereas when we sit with something, as though we're sitting with somebody on a park bench, for instance, that we can be next to whatever the concept is, that we can be close to it. But we're not just miring ourselves and allowing ourselves to just stay stuck indefinitely. That we're in a a purposeful place, an intentional place of trying to explore and better understand something. And again, don't get me wrong, it's not, I don't expect this to be, okay, day zero is when the event occurred. This is when you lost the person that you care about. And then day one, you just immediately just start getting after it, trying to understand things and trying to reconcile them and trying to integrate them. And because, God damn it, you are a high achiever and you're going to get after it. That's not my point. It's certainly natural for us to have, depending on how serious the loss is, weeks, sometimes months of feeling really, truly stuck and lost and hopeless. But we want to be able to take a look at, and especially for those of us who are the loved ones of those who are suffering, we want to be able to help and we want to be able to keep an eye on, okay, how is this progressing? Is it progressing at all? Are we moving through stages of grief? Or are we still stuck deep in denial, unwilling to acknowledge, unwilling to face the truth of what has occurred? So similar to last week's conversation in terms of our generalized unwillingness to look at mortality, to sort of put our heads up our own ass, or in the sand, if you prefer something less crass. I mean, that's understandable. But where is it that we're choosing ignorance? Where is it that we're intentionally trying to blind ourselves to deny what has really actually factually occurred? And this can play out not just in the sort of thematic or conceptual way, but it can also play out in a very tangible, practical way that we're not letting ourselves get beyond the incident. And this brings us to really what I wanted to, the primary aspect of what I wanted to address today is how can we snap ourselves back into the the routine or the mundane, which is quite frequently, at least in the near-death experiences that I've, I've encountered, and again, as I mentioned, I think last week, it's not, it's not as though I, was, uh, I died and then came back, so that's not the near-death experience that I have. But having been in combat in Iraq, I've been around a lot of death and have watched it happen and have been close to being killed myself on numerous occasions. And so this idea of allowing ourselves to get back to that regularly scheduled programming, it very often does feel incredibly mundane and fucking pointless, which in and of itself can introduce a great deal of suffering. And that sucks. 
it's I've <laughs> fucking spent months there and that is is not fun i'm obviously putting it quite lightly so how do we snap ourselves back into the routine and have it be something that can actually feel good well sometimes it's not about introducing change but it's about getting back to a solid foundation there's this idea that we find or are striving to find a balance between the electrifying clarity of that brush with death against the reality that we will quite likely have many more years or even decades on this planet. And that's part of what creates real pressure and friction is that we're sitting here having just had this you know, brush with death moment and everything feels very... stark it feels as though this one moment has somehow loomed so large in our consciousness it can be all-consuming if we let it especially because quite frequently it it creates this heightened sense of awareness one of the things that stands out for me in the times when I have had bullets or fragmentation cracking or zipping, depending on the item, <laughs> past my head, so close that you could feel the breeze, is this idea, this realization of, wow, I am alive. And it's a strange thing. It's a strange thing to be so palpably and poignantly reminded of your aliveness. Is that a word? I hope so. You know, and we have, we have all this talk in popular culture these days around gratitude journaling and being present. And I love it. I really do. I, I, I practice it. And I think that it is a Gratitude journaling and meditation or mindfulness, I think, are two of the most effective things that we can do to actually have a consistent sense of appreciation for this life that we are living. And I don't mean the specific details of your life, just actually like being alive. But I have yet to experience, including psychedelics, I have yet to experience something that allowed me to feel, to palpably feel at, at the most visceral level that I was alive. Like those moments in Iraq when I was really close to being dead. And who knows? I mean, I, it's obviously it's fair to say that I might be slow-witted or <laughs> not particularly observant. But it's... I've, I, I, that's the truth. That's my truth is that I have yet to come across anything that has reminded me of my own vitality or at least potential for vitality, like the threat of having it ripped away. So how do we balance these two things out? Because in the light of what I just described, going back to your regularly scheduled programming feels very humdrum and boring, including relationships. You're telling me that after having a brush with death that you want to go listen to your mom or your brother or your cousin complain about uh, the store running out of toilet paper or, I don't know, whatever other issues can tend to sort of populate our daily experience. If you think that that, that, that discussion around like the absence of toilet paper is going to be especially riveting for you after a near-death experience, please call me and, and talk to me because you are going to be one fascinating character. But with most of the individuals that I've encountered and spoken to about their brushes with death, it, it does tend to put you in this different mindset where these little things that 
take up so much of our day-to-day bandwidth don't matter. We don't care. And they seem so trite and meaningless. And yet, that is where we're going to be spending most of our lives. Because unless you happen to live in a war zone, chances are you are going to live a pretty long time. And most of human existence is not filled with one electric moment after another, after another, after another, after another. So finding a way to reintegrate, finding a way to achieve balance, I would say is pretty important. So what are some baseline options? And this is going to sound incredibly boring. But these are some of the cornerstone habits and behaviors that do lead back to a place of wholeness. And they are intended to be actionable. They're not, I know that most of the show isn't, you know, sort of dedicated to kind of more of the heart and soul stuff and the more esoteric elements of these issues that we face as humans on this planet which is why I wanted to balance it out a little bit with something more practical. So for starters, maintaining a consistent sleep rhythm, specifically by getting up with the sun, and I don't necessarily mean specifically at sunrise, but don't sleep in till noon. And for some of you, that may seem obvious, but just taking my own experience as an example, but also coupling it with some of the stories I've heard from other folks, For a while, it was really tough to feel the the desire or the, the, uh, yeah, I'll just stick with that, the desire to wake up, to face another day when deep inside there's this narrative that said nothing really matters. And so there was this moment in my experience where I had to have a pretty stern talking to with myself about this notion of just getting it done. And even if it felt like I was just plodding along and that there was no real enthusiasm, it was about making sure that I maintained a certain discipline, a certain rhythm. Because there was something inside of me that began to recognize that if I was going to allow myself to just drift off completely, that there would come a day where I would not recognize how to salvage my life, salvage myself. And I, to this day, I don't know if that may have been influenced by a certain book. I don't recall one specifically, but that was the thought process that went through my head as I started to recognize the way that I was just drifting away. And that for me, I had to put some controls in place. And waking up at a consistent time was one of them. And there were all kinds of little tricks that I used. So, for instance, I would go to the gym because going to the gym was something that I used to really love. And even after my brush-with-death experiences, and in this case, it was my first deployment to Iraq uh, in Fallujah where we ended up losing about a quarter of our unit to being killed in action and another uh, roughly 8% to some pretty heavy wounded in action injuries. It was in the aftermath of this deployment that I started to recognize that, yeah, okay, I needed to kind of just get back to it. And I took stock of the things that I used to love doing. I used to love going to the gym the way that it would feel to push myself, to push my capabilities, to grow stronger. And so I did that. And for months, it didn't feel good. And I don't mean that in the sense of, oh, ow, my muscles hurt. But no, it just, it just, it felt bland. It felt gray, like ashes. But I went because 
I hated waking up early. <laughs> I still do. But it was a behavior that I was, it was at least somewhat mildly enticing, or at least it used to have that feeling. And so I thought, well, okay, hey, I'll just, I'll just re-implement this because I need something to help me get up, to help me get out of bed. And even though, like I said, it was not thrilling, it was not super enthused, I went. And so the second tip is getting some sort of movement. So tip number one, have some sort of structure to your sleep. And, you know, structure your sleep environment however you need to in order to make sure that you can get up at the same time. And then secondly, get some sort of movement every day, even if it doesn't feel great or motivating. And ideally, that movement would incorporate some time outside first thing in the morning. And again, if you've listened to past episodes, ideally within the first, oh, I don't know, 40 to 60 minutes of sunrise. Because in that instance, or in that time frame, the sun has the most amount of blue light in it, and that is something that stimulates us, stimulates cortisol, and causes us to feel more alert. And one of the big pitfalls in this kind of post-brush-with-death malaise is that we don't feel very energized anymore. It's like we almost burned up all of our potential for feeling energized in, in that moment. And then the come down is really hard to counteract, especially if you find yourself sleeping until noon or later. <laughs> Another really sort of meat and potatoes tip here is to bathe. Yes, you smell. Get in the shower. Or if you want to pamper yourself, get in the bathtub. Drop some sort of like basalt bomb in there and, you know, make, make it more enjoyable. Even if it's only 1% more enjoyable. But bathing and dressing yourself. Get out of your loungewear, even if you don't feel like it. Oftentimes when we put ourselves in a position to look the part, we can feel a little bit more with it. And again, none of these tips are intended to, you know, cure cancer. But what they are intended to do is to make incremental improvement. And by stacking them together, little things that hopefully don't have a tremendous amount of resistance behind them, but by stacking them together, we get this, this progressive wave of improvement such that we are willing to allow ourselves to engage in life again. And conceptually, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to re-engage with life after having been so close to death, either personally or having witnessed it in someone else. What else will help us get there? Well, I think we have to explore how it is that we reconnect. This is one of the things that the combat crowd has been terrible, fucking terrible about is they disconnect. And there is, I think, in many circles, this great division between those quote-unquote dirty civilians. Don't worry, I don't, I don't actually think you're dirty. It's just a, say, a, a saying that they have in the military for people that have never been in the military. But this division between civilians and the combat crowd, and that is this idea that, oh, well, they can't possibly understand what I've been through. And so they end up disconnecting and, and they end up entering and, and or fortifying their own isolation chamber. And so, yeah, no shit they can't understand what you've been through. And same thing for people that have not been in the military or who have not been in combat and yet have still had this brush with mortality. Why, why would we think that somebody could actually understand that when they've never been exposed to it themselves? 
They can't. But we punish them and we punish ourselves when we make that a dividing line that causes us to go silent. So something that we can do to counteract that is to share, to share your experience. Even though you feel like those around you don't or can't understand. Additionally, writing out the ways in which you feel disconnected, even, again, if you feel like it doesn't matter or that nothing matters. And for those of you who are sitting there thinking to yourselves, well, I mean, that's easier said than done, Sean, because if I were to find myself in a position where I had gone through this kind of experience, then I really truly wouldn't have the desire to do any of this. Yeah, I fucking know. Because I've been there. And I'm not trying to suggest that I was oh so perfect at all of, all of this. Because I wasn't. And I fell on my face repeatedly. And what do I mean by falling on my face? Meaning I would try something and then stop. And then I would spend days or sometimes weeks mired in my own self-pity. Mired in my own self-imposed isolation. Even though I had friends and family actively reaching out, actively trying to do their part to make things better. And yet I was sitting there denying all of it. And I would go through different narrations around, oh, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm tougher than this. I should be holding my shit together to, well, I'm just so alone. Nobody understands it anyway. This is all so fucking pointless. To any number of other inner narratives. Not least of which was guilt. Yeah, I think about this conversation that I had with my dad after my deployment to Fallujah. And I don't, I have no idea, to this day I have no idea what I said. Because I don't think I actually really said a lot. But the tone of my voice was such that on zero notice, he booked a flight to where I was living at that time. And literally, I think he showed up within like 24 hours. So there was something in my tone of voice that was so alarming to my father that he basically parachuted in with no advance notice. And he was certainly not an individual who didn't have things to do. I mean, this was a disruption in his life. And it was during that time that I was feeling pretty depressed. And then I also felt a lot of guilt guilt at being a bad companion when he showed up. I think the 48 hours or 72 hours or whatever it was that he was in town, I I don't know. I probably said no more than 50 words the whole time he was there. And then there was this internal sense of guilt that, oh, well, I should have been more interactive. I should have been cheerier. I should have been whatever. And it's not because he put that on me. No, I mean, he was, he was so loving and caring and, and gracious to just sit and just be. And he repeatedly would just say that, like, hey, we don't have to talk. We can just sit here. But again, right, it's, it's sometimes it's a lot harder to accept what people are willing to offer us. And so this episode is not blame. It's not me pointing a finger at you. It's not me trying to come off as, as somehow some guru who knows how to do it better than you do. It's me attempting to share learnings and observations such that maybe you won't have to learn the hard way as I did. sharing this experience and writing out the ways in which you feel disconnected. And if you 
have somebody in your life who is trying actively, actively to be a part of that, to try to help, and you don't feel like talking, then maybe even just sharing your journaling with them and expressing that now is not the time for you to be engaged in back and forth, but that you're just simply attempting to communicate your current orientation, your current set point. That at least keeps some form of dialogue open, and that at least helps those who care about you to have some orientation as to where you are at. But frequently, those who care about you the most are least equipped, least trained, least knowledgeable about how to actually help you navigate this process. And so if you have had a traumatic event, either because you were close to being killed yourself or because you watched somebody that you really care about die or be very close to being killed, this is an area where I really recommend therapy. This is a very fragile time. This is a very fragile place to be in terms of your headspace and your heart space. And quite frankly, it's probably a bad time for a coach or an ineffective time for a coach. Because in these really stark moments, in these these crucible-like chapters of our life, we are frequently very fragile. We are frequently very vulnerable. And uh, <laughs> I guess in the sense I'm, maybe I should have said exposed, because I do like to, as I've said previously, like to reserve the word vulnerable for something that is beneficial when we're willing to allow ourselves to be hurt not um, exposed, which is where we're feeling raw and we're feeling utterly defenseless and, and not in our strength to be able to voluntarily take on risk, right? But where we're in a space where we feel brittle, where we feel fragile. But in these circumstances, I think this is where a therapist is, is really going to shine. And if you are the person who has had something that physically brought you close to death, whether it's, let's say, a car accident, for instance, or if you were assaulted on the street, but something that was very bodily, very physical, in that circumstance, I think that finding a somatic experiencing therapist or sometimes referred to as sensory experiencing, I think these men and women who are trained and qualified in, in this type of therapy are tremendous. And I've been through that experience myself. And I think that, as I've mentioned before in the book, uh, well, in past episode, the, the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, he talks about this way that trauma is stored physically and it's not just in our head. It's we're not being weak, but that there is a physical connection to trauma and those therapists out there who are trained in somatic experiencing can be very, very effective in helping process on a physical level. These traumas that are stuck inside of us, this traumatic energy that is stuck inside of us and to allow that to work its way free. And if you are contemplating finding a somatic experiencing therapist, I would recommend that you not watch videos about what it is supposed to do and that you just go through the experience. You know, don't ruin the secret sauce ahead of time. And that was something that my somatic experiencing therapist asked of me was to not do a bunch of research ahead of time. And I was really grateful that he made that request because I think if I had sort of known how the magic trick worked, then it it's possible that it may have been less effective. Now, having said that, I had more experiences after the first one 
And so, you know, it still worked, even though I knew what the process was. But having a professional who can help work out that physically trapped traumatic energy, I think, is is critical. Another form of therapy that I really enjoy for, I mean, that sounds bad, um, that I think is effective, I should say, for this kind of post-traumatic experience is EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing therapy. Now, the EMDR process has evolved. In the beginning, there was a lot of kind of looking left and right with your eyeballs keeping your head stationary. And there are some practitioners out there who are probably still practicing it sort of in its uh, original manifestation. But the practice has changed a little bit to having other ways of creating sort of a left-right stimulus. And quite frequently, what they'll use is sort of um, what you would consider, I guess, a, a puck, like a little a little handheld device, and one in the left hand and one in the right hand, and then there's there's a, a central control unit that causes a vibration alternatingly left, right, left, right, left, right. And you can change the frequency and the intensity of that oscillation of left to right. And essentially what ends up happening is, again, there's, there's this as yet to be fully fleshed out connection between mind and body. And where it is that we have certain traumatic energies or traumatic narratives for instance going back to that car accident example where you failed to spot something you're driving you didn't see something your friend dies you live right that that can be a real recipe for survivor's guilt and all kinds of feelings of culpability so you can have not only the physical trauma of having been smashed up in a car but then also traumatic narratives around what you should have done or should not have done to preserve or protect the life of the person that you cared about who in the sake of this example or for the sake of this example didn't make it and so emdr does really provide um, a very effective way to process through some of these narratives and still incorporating that somatic aspect do I feel like it gets as deep into the body as somatic experiencing therapy does? No, I don't, but I still think it's, I, I, I still highly recommend it. Now, another form of therapy that can be useful, but at least in my <laughs> less than expert opinion, is probably something that is reserved more for later down the road and i have no way of clearly identifying or declaring or defining what later down the road actually means but i guess i would say probably i don't, I don't know <laughs> I, wish, I wish that I had a clear answer on that one essentially i would not do this last form of therapy until i had tried one of the other two first and that is cognitive behavioral therapy. And I think that where CBT really comes to the foreground is in helping people get back in the saddle, so to speak, in helping them begin to gradually reacquaint themselves with something that is scary or traumatic and that this process of challenging, threatening beliefs, threatening imagery, threatening sensation that cbt does a really good job of that in a, in a very structured way helping people kind of break down the barriers that are keeping them from re-engaging in a life that they find energizing and rewarding and fulfilling now what do we do if we are a loved one of someone who has gone through an experience that exposed them to mortality. For starters, how can you keep an eye out to see if there are any noticeable drop-offs in communication or intimacy of relating? 
as I alluded to previously, you know, where is it that somebody is suddenly unavailable, not answering messages, not texting back, or if they are texting back or manage to pick up the phone, that they are conversing in monosyllabic ways. Yes, no. Also, what is the tone? Is it flat? Is it dull? Is there an obvious lack of enthusiasm? How are you doing? Fine. How have things been going with school or with work or with your intramural volleyball team? Okay. Well, what are you looking forward to? Oh, I don't know. These kind of, it's this just sort of lackluster tone. Also, you want to be able to look for some sort of future orientation. Are they looking forward to things? This person that has gone through this traumatic experience. Do they have some sense of excitement for what's to come? And for those who have listened to past episodes where I've kind of talked about the dividing lines or the rough dividing lines between coaching and therapy, it is largely that question, where is somebody willing to be prospective? And if they're not willing to be prospective, or if they are currently incapable of bringing themselves to a mindset where they can be prospective, then, yeah, that's a good opportunity to rope in the support of a therapist versus a coach. And for you, who are the loved one of this person who is going through something really challenging or the aftermath of a brush with death, this is something to look out for. Also, where are you listening for expressions of hopelessness or irrelevance or meaninglessness? This can very frequently be a huge warning sign when nothing matters anymore, when it's all pointless, whether that's, I don't know, finish, finishing your degree or applying for that job that you were looking forward to previously or taking a vacation or meeting up with friends. And when all of that is starting to be labeled as meaningless or pointless, that's a time for real concern and to really try to circle the wagons, not in a way that's smothering, but also in a way that clearly and firmly communicates that you're there to support them, that you've taken notice. And this can be really, really challenging because sometimes that person is going to start to get pretty toxic or acidic if you push in there too deeply when they want to be alone. But it's, again, this is the, oh, this is a, the real, you know, rubber meets the road part is that their self-imposed isolation generally is not going to help in the long run and it can make things worse. So how is it that you can make sure that they know that you are observing, that you are noting that they are hurting? Not that you know how they feel, because you don't, unless you've been through something similar, but that you are observing and that it matters to you, even if they can't feel like it matters to them and that you love them and you care about them and that you're not going to sit back and watch them wither away. So part of that, in terms of language, is to ask questions even though their responses are going to just be the dullest, flattest things that could possibly come at you, quite possibly, right? I'm, I'm speaking worst-case scenario here. But to continue to try to engage and to ask whether they feel thrown off by the experience. You know, not, oh, do you feel deficient? <laughs> do, you, do you feel weak? Nothing, nothing like that. Hey, do you feel like what happened to your friend or 
if they themselves were involved in some sort of traumatic incident that caused this brush with death, do you feel like it's thrown you off? Thrown you off your game or thrown you off your your regular vibe? And if they say no, you could say, okay. Well, how do you, how do you think that it's showing up? Seems like it might be a pretty robust and intense experience that you just went through. How is it that it hasn't affected you? Because, I mean, if something were like that were to happen to me in the future, I would love to be able to know so that I could kind of keep myself on track. And I would suspect that with continued conversation, because quite frequently people will say no as a way to stop the inquiry as a way to cut it off. But when the inquiry continues and they really begin to feel trust that you care and that you're not just trying to be nice, but that you're not going away. I mean, when my dad showed up, <laughs> when, he, when he basically, when he came back and sent me an email saying, I'm going to be landing in San Diego in 24 hours, that it, despite my very depressed state and the fact that I had my head right up my ass, that was a huge signal. It was a huge signal that clearly I was communicating to my outside world in a way that was extremely alarming. And it was a huge signal to me or a huge communication to me that he cared. And goddamn, uh, you know, it's not that my dad and I have had a perfect relationship, but when he <laughs> that that was profoundly meaningful for me. That display, that coming to the rescue, if you will, even though when he arrived, he wasn't rescuing anything. He didn't have answers. He didn't have cute slogans to throw my way. He didn't. He didn't try to make every single second a laugh track. He just was there, and he just allowed us to sit. He allowed us to be still. But his presence made it us instead of me alone. And that is absolutely critical. Which brings me to my last point, which is offer to listen, even though you might not be able to understand or absolutely cannot understand what the other person is going through. To just listen, to be there, to be in fellowship, to be embraced in a sense of belonging is more powerful than you can realize. Again, it's something I've mentioned in passing in different shows is this idea that with coaching, and I would say therapy as well, it's this idea that we're there to listen, to allow the person, the client, the patient, the, the friend, the family member, whatever role you're filling, to feel heard, to feel seen. And that doesn't actually require you to know exactly what they're going through. It requires you to be there. And it requires you to not just be there physically, but to be there with spirit and heart. To be open and receiving, even though you are scared because you are worried about your friend, your family member. You're worried about what they've gone through. You're worried about their ability to get back on level. But to put yourself in that open state of receiving and to just allow them to open up into that space and to share with you whatever it is that they have in their heart or on their mind, including thoughts that are dark, including thoughts that don't make sense to you. And it's not your opportunity to judge them. It's not your opportunity to say, oh, pish posh, that doesn't make any sense or, or, you know, 
hey, no big deal. It'll be fine. Don't worry. This is a thing that a lot of people do is they, and including coaches, I've seen coaches try to uh, push their client through a rough spot because they're so uncomfortable with the tension. They're so worried that they're going to get stuck there with the client. Not from their own sense of sadness or anything like that, but this fear that, oh God, I won't be able to get this person to a better place. And it's not your role. It's not your responsibility to get them somewhere. And in this case, I'm not talking to fellow coaches. I'm talking to you as a family member or as a friend who's trying to be there for someone who had a traumatic experience, a near-death experience. That is not your place. Your place is to just hold the space to create an environment or to create a feeling or, as we like to say in the coaching industry, a container in which that other person can pour themselves and to spew out all the things that they don't know all the things that they're confused about, all the uncertainty that they have, and to just let them be in that space, let them feel that you care about them, that they're loved. In Buddhism, there is this expression, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. And that to me is such a beautifully eloquent, eloquent? (laughs) Elegant expression. Because it really captures the fact that even though we can have something truly momentous happen to us, that we are still in this process of living. That it does not get encapsulated in some sort of penultimate moment and then stuck on the shelf with the rest of our trophies. That life is more verb than noun. And even though we can have these, again, transcendent or highly contrasting moments, some of which are going to feel amazing and some of which are going to feel very, very scary and in either direction can dump us into this land of gray, this purgatory of experience where nothing feels as clarifying or as electrifying as that either transcendent or you know potentially traumatizing moment. But that as long as we are physically alive, it is up to us to determine what the quality and character of that life is going to be. And no matter what state you're in, that we come back to the basics. That we have our anchor and that we can move from that foundation forward to build a better tomorrow, even though today may feel hopeless. And if you are listening to this at a time when you do feel hopeless, just know that you are not alone. That there are all manner of people out there who have been there and are currently there with you. And that for those who have been there, they may find themselves there again at some point in the future. But that in all instances, we can pull ourselves out of that. If we chop wood and we carry water, we just continue to do the basics. We continue to put one foot in front of the other. As usual, I hope that you are enjoying the show. Not necessarily in the sense that it always feels good, 
but in the sense that it is allowing you to create a more effective, more empowered, more fulfilling, more rewarding life for yourself and those around you. I would ask that you subscribe or follow the show. And if you feel like writing a review, that would be fantastic. It does help with rankings and ratings and all of that sort of thing that when I try to get guests on the show, <laughs> they, uh, they want to have a sense of where their knowledge, where their expertise, where their message is going to go. So that is quite helpful. But on a more practical level or a more immediate level, share it. Share episodes that you think are going to help those in your life. Because it's when we reach out to one another that we can actually make a real difference. So until next time, take care of each other.